How long would his nerves hold out? Many little things combined to tell me that he was on a dangerous slope. He constantly needed to indulge his hatred of the world. He humiliated people who had to serve him, made a fool of an old woman selling papers, got a crowd of girls to fight for a thousand franc note. And every time he watched to see what impression it would make on me. He was getting near the precipice. Sooner or later, he'd lose his head and make a fatal slip. He did. The greatest criminals come to it in the end. Welcome to the Pink Smoke podcast. I am John Cribbs here with co-founder Chris Funderberg, and we are talking about George Simonon today. We're talking about his most famous character, Inspector McGray. And I'm going into this just to let everyone know kind of as a novice, because I obviously know who Simonon is. I think I pronounce his name correctly. I certainly know of several of the films that have been based on his work, but this is going to be the first one of his books I've ever actually picked up to read, whereas uh, my co-host, Mr. Funderburg, is a lot more knowledgeable about him. So let me just open, Chris, by asking you, what's his deal? What's the deal with this guy? What's uh, First what off, his... don't, don't worry about it. I've, I've probably read 50 Simonon books, and I'm a novice as well. There's just, <laughs> there's just too much Simonon to be a completist. You know, we, we did an episode on one of his books, Night at the Crossroads, right? And it didn't even come up in that episode that there's a version of it made in 2017 starring Mr. Bean. We didn't even mention that. There's just so many adaptations, so many books. He's impossibly prolific. Uh, he claims that early in his career, he would write a novel in three days, 85 pages a day. And so from that early part of his career, like pre-1934, there's, there's almost an unknown number of novels that he wrote because he wrote for years and years under dozens of pseudonyms, right? Before he started on his real books. And Inspector McGray is sort of the start of the real books when he starts writing those uh, at, at the end of the 20s, early 30s. But he supposedly in total wrote around 350 novels and short stories before he slowed down to work on his quote unquote real books in 1934. And I told um, my wife 2000 books and she said, really? And I said, honestly, I don't know. It could be 2000 books. I think one of the reasons that it's kind of daunting to get into him is because of he so, was so ridiculously prolific. There are 75 McGrain novels and another 28 short stories, which is just insanely prolific. You know, this is one of the, the book we're talking about tonight, A Man's Head, is one of 11 novels he published in 1931, right? Just to give you a sense of like, everybody's a Simonon novice when it comes to reading his work. I bet there are biographers who have written about him, who have not read all of them. I mean, if you think about it with 350 novels and short stories, even if you dedicated your life to reading these books, if it took you a couple days, this is still like three or four years doing nothing but reading his books to get somewhere complete and somewhere near the total, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Completists would be fucked if they were a Simonon completist. And, and another thing about Simonon is, is that there's no real consensus on what the most important one is, because he had these books he called his, his romandeurs, which are his, his, his hard novels, right? His hard novels, which were his serious books that he takes more seriously. And like a lot of authors who 
put aside their less serious work for their serious work. The serious work is in general not as good as the unserious work, I would say. You know, that that like Lewis Carroll, you know, with Sylvie and Bruno. No, Alice in Wonderland is is the better book. Like you don't need to read when they get serious in that same way. And I think that there's a little bit of that with with Simenon, um, you know, and for example, like in 1931, he wrote this book and published A Man's Head, which is one of the better known ones, I think. He published it right before The Yellow Dog, which for reasons that are completely mysterious, might be the best known of his novels. But if you read it, it's of indistinguishable quality from A Man's Head or my friend Magret, or, you know, Magret commits a crime, you know, from any number of them that are in the series, uh, in, in the Magret series. I should pronounce it correctly, Magret. I always say it with the hard T because I'm an American who loves to bungle things. <laughs> but one of his best known books, uh, or at least most adapted books, Monsieur Ire, is one of the hard novels, right? That's not one of the yes. kind of pulp ones. Yeah, and that has two great adaptations, Panique with Michel Simon, and uh, then one uh, with Sandrine Bonaire, uh, which is 89, I believe, and it's Patrice Leconte, who's sort of a journeyman director. And I actually think that's closer to Simonon's book than, um, than the Michel Simon version. Uh, but he's, you know, even when, when Simenon was asked, like, what's your favorite? What's the essential? He would frequently say three rooms in Manhattan, uh, which is not very good at all. It's not <laughs> a very good book. That's just uh, something artists do, though, right? They pick like one of their most mediocre works as their personal favorite of their works. Yeah. And he would he would readily admit that it was for sentimental reasons that he had written it. He had he moved to America uh, after World War II, and when he had been living there for a while, it was his first book he wrote about America, and it's about uh, foreigners living in America, and it's a romance, and it has a happy ending, and things like that. So it's it's a little off model for him, you know. But he's he's mainly famous for more than any given book for writing so many books. And like I said, I've probably read 40 or 50 Simenon novels at this point, And I feel like a total amateur. If you talk to any other person who likes Simenon and is interested, even if they're a fanatic, they're going to talk about a bunch of books you haven't read usually, uh, unless they focus on a, a typical way to get into Simenon is to focus on the ones that have been adapted into films uh, more frequently than the others. And A Man's Head, this one we're talking about today is one of those uh, books uh, that that gets adapted with a fair amount of frequency. And there are easily 100 films that have been adapted from his books since 19, what, the, the 1920s or what? Since 1931. The first ones uh, uh, is there's an adaptation of, of Yellow Dog and Night at the Crossroads in 1931. In fact, Night at the Crossroads, La Nuit de Care For, we talked about on a different episode. It's directed by the great Jean Renoir. It's one of his strangely overlooked and forgotten 30s movies. Basically, at the height of his career and power, this movie doesn't get brought along with all the others in a way that's very strange. And I think it's still one of the very best uh, Simonon adaptations, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I think but it just goes to show like how easy it is to kind of lose Simonon's place in French culture that I didn't even remember that was based on one of his books until you just mentioned it just now. You know, I mean, it's just there's so much out there that it's just easy to kind of forget 
oh yeah, that's that's the Simenon that they adapted for that one. <laughs> yeah, and we should mention he's Belgian and moved to France. Uh, he's he uh, was a youngster during um, World War One and lived under the German occupation, which was uh, apparently pretty brutal in Belgium. And he, he claims he had to eat rats to stay alive and that it was actually a delicacy. But he's a dude who does a lot of, uh, of self-mythologizing, you know, and there's stuff like he'll talk about, like he writes so fast that he spends 11 days on a real novel, but he works so hard that his doctor has to check him before and after and that his doctor will only approve him to write X number of novels a year because it'll just kill him if he keeps up this insane pace, right? And he also claims to have slept with thousands of women, right? Over the course of his career, uh, a career, his, his woman's sleeping career over the course of his life, he claims to have slept with thousands of women. And, you know, those numbers are disputed by his ex-wives who do put the numbers <laughs> quite high though. His ex-wives are not, are like, it wasn't 5,000. It was more like 8,000, you know, are that kind of, <laughs> kind of thing from him. It's logistically, it must have been impossible unless he could have sex while writing a novel, which maybe he could. I don't know. You know, he maybe that's a skill. It seems, you know, if you can write 85 pages a day and he claims he would not revise them at all, that that he would basically put them down and then cut things from them, but that he wouldn't add more and he didn't really fuss over them. Um, he actually he talks about um, his editor at Le Mantin. Uh, Le Matin, I don't even, The Morning, uh, was Colette of Becoming Colette fame, John, which we were just talking about on another (laughs) podcast. But one of the things she told him was that you write too literary. When he was young, he would, when he was 19, he started writing, he would submit and submit and submit and get rejected. She said, it's too literary. You always write too literary. This is too literary, the work. And he realized that what she meant was that he was trying to make the, the writing too good. So now he has a thing that he says, if you have a beautiful sentence, cut it. Every time I find such a thing in one of my novels, it is to be cut, right? And I think that that sums him up as a writer very clearly, possibly more than anything, is that he these are lean things. Yeah. And, and you well, know, I... No, I was going to say that was one thing I was going to bring up to you because having read only this book, obviously the thing you notice right away is how lean it is to how everything is two, maybe three sentence paragraphs, a lot of dialogue, really moving along briskly without like stopping to appreciate the the location or the geography or anything like that. That snippet I just read at the top of the episode was like five paragraphs as brief as it was. So I'm just guessing that this is sort of his, what he's kind of known for is this, this very lean style. Yes. It's, it's almost it's Raymond Carver-esque, but with no desire to be poetic. It's that sort of clipped and straightforward, but without any pretension to it. Um, And actually, it's funny, you had mentioned to me, we're recording on a Monday, like last Tuesday, you were like, Chris, I haven't read it yet. And I was like, not only will you have time to read it, you can probably read another two before we record the episode because they're they're very slim like the edition that i have of this one is like half the physical size like the verticality the height of a regular novel Mm. and fairly big uh type on it and it's still only clocking in at like 170 pages and they're just they're very very quick reads they're very very easy reads because the language is so concise and clear 
and all of the thinking is very straightforward and clear. Yeah, the copy I have, which is uh, titled um, McGray's War of Nerves, is under 150 pages. So yeah, sometimes yeah. it gets printed under the title Battle of Nerves or War of Nerves, which I think is a really bad translation. I mean, it's I guess it makes sense. Our uh, transliteration, obviously, not, not translation, but just uh, it's. I don't love that. I don't love that title. John, before we get too deep into this book, with every book we do on here, we do an aperitif and a dessert pairing, the aperitif beforehand to kind of lead you into this book and then a dessert pairing to take you out and top off the meal you've just had. So let's do those before we get too chugging along, before we move at too furious of a Simenon-esque pace. Okay, well, my aperitif for this book would be a book titled A Cast of Killers, written by Sidney D. Kirkpatrick. Uh, this is a book about the infamous 1922 murder of film director William Desmond Taylor. And the reason, of course, I'm picking it is because it comes up very specifically in uh, Simonon's book and also in the, the film version. And you've got a copy of it right there, right next yes, to Yes, sitting on my desk, incidentally, I have a copy. <laughs> it's a fascinating true story, true crime, because William Desmond Taylor was known sort of as this uh, completely debasing Hollywood director who, you know, had dozens and dozens of women under his thumb and was just kind of like an awful tyrant, kind of everything that silent Hollywood era, you know, Hollywood was condemned for at the time as just sort of being this town of, of sinful lecherousness. And supposedly he was shot to death by the mother of a teenage actress that he, you know, was, was abusing that he was under his, under his uh, thrall. And that is at least the conclusion everyone makes in the movie, specifically in uh, Tete d'Homme which is based on this uh, Simonon book, the killer says that, you know, everyone knows who the killer is, but it was such a perfect crime that they'll never send her to jail. And indeed, she was never put in jail. So this book, Cast of Killers, kind of tries to find what evidence it can to kind of make a case for it, but it's kind of shoddy. It's kind of all over the place. And it's a little more complicated than that because the mother, you know, uh, was a real like a psychic psychotic stage mom to this you know actress why would she risk you know losing her bread and butter by you know ruining her career with this scandal there are all these questions you know saying you know why would this person do this and so it kind of opens more questions than it answers but the most interesting thing about it is that uh, the great director King Vidor became obsessed with this case in the last 16 years of his life and so he becomes kind of a major character in this book and uh his pursuit of the the truth of what actually happened to William Desmond Taylor kind of makes the most interesting thing, especially if you're a big King Vidor fan, which I know we both are. So it's an interesting read, even though again, it's not it's not like a great book, you know, but it's just has it's just full of interesting facts. This, not all of them true, but you know, a very interesting read. I this is such a great selection for this. I can't believe we've never talked about this book, me and you, John. This is one of like my formative true crime books from high school. This is one of the things my mom, my mom gave me a bunch of true crime books that were very formative on me, like uh, the Helter Skelter, the Vincent Bugliosi book. But this was one of them. And I this is, you can see how yellowed and beat my hardcover copy is, <laughs> is here. Just, I've been through this. I even have like 
notes scrawled in the margin of this thing from when I was when I was in high school. I must have been like 15 when I first read that book. And that's I I'm sort of shocked it's never come up in our conversations, <laughs> given how much. Uh, yeah, we, I actually thought you might have picked this just because, you know, as soon as they name dropped Taylor in in Simonon's book, I was like, oh, I'll bet Chris is going to pick that for his aperitif. I better get to it first. <laughs> No, my aperitif, that's an excellent selection and everybody should, should read that too. Um, and like you say, it's more, true crime has become like both classier and more tasteless in recent years, I would say, where or more truthful and more tasteless. Hmm. It's become more about entertainment, but people stick more closely to the facts. That's from an era when like fabulism and sort of speculation was a bigger part of the true crime thing, but true crime was still like sleazy and kept in a corner and sort of out of the way of the rest of popular culture, which made it feel like you're engaging in something not quite kosher just to be learning about this stuff, you know, where everything was sort of in some way spiritually informed by Hollywood Babylon. I would say that that was like yeah. the book that touched all true crime for decades, you know? And this yeah, book it was definitely an era when this book came out and when we were reading a lot of true crime in the nineties, where it was like absolutely considered trash, right? I mean, there was yeah. no true crime, maybe Helter Skelter, but everything else was, you know, considered just kind of real, you know, <laughs> remain remainder bin type stuff. Yeah. And now you have the opposite where you have sort of the classy, uh, classified, upscaled, elevated true crime of like serial and all of those HBO documentaries and Netflix documentaries and stuff, which in some way I think are more tasteless to turn it into mass entertainment as opposed to something that genuine weirdos are interested in. I don't know. It's a strange tension, you know, and I don't want to pretend like there's any change. Like, crime interest in crime has always been popular like the yellow newspapers are always selling on the lurid details all throughout history people are always coming from miles around to see the hanging you know what i mean like i don't want to mm -hmm. pretend like we've entered some era that's that's different than what it was but i do think that one of the things that's nice about cast of killers is is that it is sleazy and sort of wrapped up in a in an almost mythological idea of the story and willing to take uh uh, untrustworthy actors at face value as well and sort of say, well, this person said something crazy. Let's go with that, you know, kind of right. attitude throughout it, you know, and can you believe King Vidor solved this case? And it's like, well, he, he didn't really, you know, but, <laughs> but thank you for, you know, positioning it that way. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a book. Maybe we should talk about that book sometime. Give it its, its own episode of the sure. show. No, it's fascinating stuff. Absolutely. For my aperitif pairing, uh, it is another novel from 1931, published in, in 1931, uh, which is called Peril at End House, which is one of Agatha Christie's early Hercule Poirot novels, or like mid-period, not super early. I think, I think it's like the sixth one or something. But it is, I pick that for a comparison to what McGray is and what Simonon is doing. And I picked it from the same year because on the, on the surface, they're both detective fiction with convoluted, clever criminal plots behind them. 
And I think that if you read some Agatha Christie and then you read Simenon, it will become immediately clear what makes Simenon so special and what makes his books so remarkable even now. And uh, Simenon sometimes gets referred to being more psychological. And I'm not, I, I think that's fair and I think that's true, but it, it's not quite to the level that psychological um, crime fiction would go with like Patricia Highsmith or, or Mr. Bowling buys a newspaper. It's like prehistory to that. But if you compare it to Agatha Christie, um, it really is so wildly different. And Agatha Christie, even now, that kind of mystery novel is still the dominant mystery novel where the plot of it is uh, uh, Poirot meets a young woman uh, who some people try, seem to be trying to kill for some reason, right? And then there's a mix-up with a Shaw where her Shaw is put on someone else and then that person gets killed by an assassin's bullet and there's forgers and there's jealous people and there's a house being inherited and there's a secret uh, fiancé, right? All of these things being tied together. There's cocaine-laced bonbons that are only one is ingested so the victim doesn't die from them. And I was when I when I read that I was like, God, that sounds fucking great. Coke, Coke, chocolate. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I would die from that for sure. I'm surprised I, they weren't putting cocaine into the into chocolate just <laughs> just regularly at that time, honestly. But it is. It's one of those books that's like just clever to the point of stupidity. You know, just just clever to the point of irritation, like so much of, of Christie's stuff for me, where it's just you can solve this mystery, I guess. But who the fuck cares? And there's nothing else to it beyond what's the solution to this mystery? You know, and it's it's got red herrings and it's got double crosses and it's got false bottom villains where some people are revealed to be counterfeiters. But they're not the murderers, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and, you know, and this and people have the same name. It's revealed, you know, kind of thing all throughout this story. And um, like, it's fine if you like that sort of thing. I don't even know how to rate her books as as good or better, you know, or worse than the other. Uh, and I think it's mainly interesting in comparison to Simenon from the exact same time period and the exact same sort of mindset to see what distinguishes Simenon from his peers so sharply even now. I'm glad that your choice was <laughs> a way to compare something to why this book is better because I actually had an idea for my dessert that I was going to pick any number of like recent cat and mouse thrillers where the villain is three steps ahead and has this whole plan that kind of unfolds and has, you know, is, has this psychological hold over our hero. And I was thinking, God, I could talk about Skyfall or the Dark Knight or any other yeah. kind of like miserable, hacky, you know, convoluted bullshit villain that everyone says is amazing and what a great villain he was, where it's just like, God, I'm so tired of this fucking trope. And you know th this back then, back then when old Simonon was writing about it, this is what I <laughs> this is the way to do it right, you know. Yeah. Um, so the plot of this book it opens mid action, right? Where we have yeah Joseph Hertan, he's escaping from prison. 
He finds his cell unlocked at night. He seems to know it's going to be unlocked. And then he goes to the prison yard, avoiding the spotlights and fumbles around for an impossibly long amount of time until he finds a rope that's been thrown over the wall to escape. And meanwhile, we see Inspector McGrett and the chief inspector and prosecutor watching this guy escape because they've slipped him a note saying, hey, we're going to get you out of prison like we promised. Here's the way to get out. And then this man escapes. Because what has happened is Joseph Huertan has been arrested for murdering a wealthy woman and her maid, or essentially living companion. And he's left so many clues all over the place. Fingerprints, bloody handprints, shoe prints, where you can still see the number on the boots that were bought. You know, just everything is there to track it back to him so easily. They catch him so easily. And he seems so confused and so unwilling to talk. Uh, about what's happened and denies that he committed the murder that McGray, despite capturing him, Mr. Huertan, and getting him the death penalty, it's open and shut, becomes convinced there's other people involved. And if they let him, quote unquote, escape from prison, he'll lead him to the other murderer, right? It's a, it's a good, you know, fairly unrealistic setup, you know, but also, you know, within, within the neighborhood of reason, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a great hook, you know, for a book. And that if this guy gets away from the trailing police officers or anything like that's happens, it's really, it's on McGray's head, isn't it? Right. You know, and that's also where the title of it comes through is what is, what is the truth worth? Is it worth the price of a man's head essentially is don't we have a responsibility to find out who really did this? And where does it go from there, John? What goes from there is that they lose track of, I, I always call him Hurton. I figure this guy, <laughs> he's poor guy, he's Hurton. 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 Uh, manages to get away. But they, they, the reason he gets away is because it's been leaked to the newspaper by an anonymous source that the police let him out on purpose. So their their plot has been you know exposed to the public and Hurton is about to read a paper and they clumsily try to get away from him and scares him and he, he runs away like a jackrabbit but they are able to because they have a sherlock holmes handwriting expert working for the police department who is able to tell you know like if a guy is suffering from a disease the way his handwriting is or you know what country he might be from just just seems like this magic handwriting expert. well actually like him because it's it's actually very simple no it's stuff. very cool but it's, it's just, very it's funny. simple stuff he determines which is that english doesn't seem to be the guy's first language or french doesn't seem to be the guy's first language uh he recognizes the letterhead that it was used at that the hotel it was taken from because it was cut off and he recognizes the paper because it's a special kind of paper he says it was also written by a left-handed to disguise the writing of it and that there's a shakiness to it that indicates some kind of neurodegenerative disease. Yeah, no, and, look, look, it's very cool. It's a very yeah. <laughs> cool character. I just like, you know, it's just funny that, you know, he's that good. You'd like to think that, you know, a, a well-organized department unit like this would have people who are that good at their jobs, you know, that yeah. you can rely on them for things like this. It doesn't reach the level of magical thinking the way it does in like a Christie thing, you know, mm, where it okay. doesn't reach that level of like, and I tasted his biscuit and I knew from the butter flavor that he used that it was Irish butter, you know, that kind <laughs> of, it doesn't reach that level of, of ludicrousness, you know, it stays within the neighborhood of 
knowable facts. The the disease thing is the one where I'm like, well, who the hell knows about that? It is it is hinted at that if he had another day to examine it, he could tell you what kind of breakfast the writer had. <laughs> Well, there's a, the isn't there a stain from his cafe au lait on it too? There is a cafe au lait stain. There's yes. a stain from his cafe au lait on it, on it as well. <laughs> but the, I should also be pointed out, none of the other cops even are slightly super cops, even Magret. Like the cops are constantly fucking up in this book. And in all of the, the Janvier and Lucas, they lose them. You know, where yeah. smashes a bottle smashes a beer uh, on uh, on Janviev's or is it Lucas's head, whichever is the smaller, younger one's head. And he's very worried about how the stitches are going to affect his hairline after that for the rest of the book. I love that they're not super cops. I love that the setup is this absurd picture of McGray sitting across the river in another hotel using uh-huh. opera glasses because that's all they have to give him for binoculars. And the fact that these cops are getting you know tired, they're, you know, kind of looking around and distracted, things like that. It really sets up because if, especially if you've never read him the gray before, you wonder like, is this just some regular guy? Like, how is he going to have the upper hand over criminals if he's just some guy, you know? And it definitely sets up him and his, his, uh, his fellow police officers as human people, you know, who are, you know, yeah. are fallible and are going to let people get away from them, even though it's their job. It's their one job to make sure that this guy does not get away from them. And so the next the next wrinkle is that uh, they lose Huertan, who escapes, and they McGray, uh, or is it McGray or is it Lucas? One of them decides to go to the cafe where the rich lady's nephew hangs out, the guy who's inherited all of the money from her. He goes to see this nephew for some reason just to hang out, and Huertan shows up at this cafe, covered in mud, looking crazy, hanging around outside, right? And won't even let him inside because he looks so bad. Yeah. And, and it's a rich person cafe. And the thing that's strange is the nephew walks out the place right past where Tan and they don't seem to know each other. This seems like an obvious link that they have some connection to each other, that he's come to this cafe, that he's somehow in on it with the nephew, but they pass each other and betray no recognition. And then uh, later on, uh, he mentions the name of Huertan to to the nephew, and there's just no and his wife. There's just no recognition whatsoever. They don't have any connection. But sitting in the cafe is a strange little Czech man with red hair that's frizzled and pulled back, and he sit having just a cup of coffee and eating a pot of yogurt. And he's doing that all day when the cafe is busy. Then when everyone leaves, he continues to sit there, just him and a Russian woman right? Who's like reading the newspaper and nursing a croissant for hours. And it becomes clear, the trick of the book is that in that moment, it becomes immediately clear that this man, Radek, has something to do with the murder and has somehow engineered all of the murder. Uh, and that it is up to McGray to figure it out and to see who will break first. It becomes the battle of nerves. And that is, that's what I like about this book is that it's not actually a mystery in the sense of who done it. The moment he interacts with Radek, right? And it's a great scene because Radek's sitting there. He sees Huertan as well, who seems to be hanging around the cafe looking for somebody. And he immediately orders three caviar sandwiches and a vodka. And he's a known deadbeat in this bar. So they bring him the stuff and they're like, hey, we need you to pay right now. Before and some expensive cigarettes as well. Yes, the Abdullahs, a large pack of Abdullahs. And, and says to them, 
oh, I don't have any money to pay as he's eating the sandwiches. You're going to have to arrest me. So he gets arrested. And as he's being taken out, where Tan sees the cops and runs away, right? So he runs away to his family's house. But from that moment forward that we meet Raddick, it is a very classic, this killer who's playing games with this, or this criminal mastermind who's playing games with our detective is that he is a Moriarty type who's engineered a crime that's so perfect that it can't be solved, right? And what I love about Raddick is that it is the most believable an interesting depiction of that I've ever seen, that it really reminds me of a true psychological criminal profile. There's a certain kind of serial killer in particular that believes he's a genius and just loves to tell everybody about his genius and wants the attention. You know, people like like uh, the BTK and, you know, uh, and uh, uh, the huge one who killed his mother, old Bumblebutt, uh, Kemper right? These are people who take a lot of pride in like the cleverness of their actions and what they've done with it. And he resembles those kind of figures uh, a little bit more than he resembles a Hannibal Lecter type. And that's what oh, I really 100%. like about it. Yeah, now, me too. Did you, did you, did you think he works as a character? What do you, what do you like to me? He's the best thing about the book and is what makes the book to me. Did you like him or did you feel like it was stale having seen generations of that? No, like I said, this is what it feels like when it's done right, when it feels fresh, when it's a almost 100 year old book, but it feels, you know, you're still completely intrigued by who this character is and how this whole thing got engineered. It's funny with the name like Raddick, you think it's like, that sounds like a Michael Ironside character in like a 90s action movie. <laughs> yeah. But you really should, we should be picturing like a redheaded Martin Kessler, really, right? <laughs> yeah, character. well, I think in the movie, Julian de Vivier made a movie of this in 33. And I think the casting of that role is perfect. This guy, Valerie, Valerie Inkinjanov, who's Russian, he's the, the best thing about the movie. He's phenomenally perfect in this role and brings a great, like, manic, clever energy to it. This guy, and, and you know what's else great about this actor? Stalin wanted to kill him. Stalin hated him and he defected, really hated him. Stalin just had to, you know, kiss his hairy beanbag because he got away. I was actually just <laughs> watching him in a, uh, I recorded a podcast for the uh, Cult Movies podcast on um, King of Hearts by Philippe de Broca. And so I was watching a bunch of old de Broca movies and uh, he's great. I just saw him in Up to His Ears. Uh, which is one of the Belmondo de Broca like action movies where he plays the villain. He's great in that though, even though that movie's definitely racially problematic. I can't even <laughs> translate the French title into English because I'm worried it's just racist now. Uh, and he definitely is a problematic character, but he's great and he's great in the movie. Yeah, yeah, he's terrific. Uh, it's, it's funny too, how they recharacterize that character specifically in the film you know i guess we can get into the film a little bit too as we're talking about the book because in that pre-war french crime mold the films that were being made by renoir and by carnet and everything what you have is like kind of the tragic villain in a lot of these right or the one who is kind of spurred by not noble means but kind of desperate ones and yeah. they really up his his disease and the fact that he is dying the fact that he's a doomed man, right? Who has yeah. nothing to lose except for to, you know, go up against the police and to humiliate McGray and also to let on this woman, the wife of the 
nephew because what would a French crime uh, movie be if there wasn't somebody who gets (laughs) ruined by a woman in some way or another, specifically his obsession with the woman and uh, set up in the movie that ruined by his romantic ideal. Right. Well, not only not even the woman that does it, the woman's not a femme fatale. It's his romantic ideal that ruins him. Well, yeah, it's set up already that the nephew, the reason he wants is, is so willing to off his aunt and get this inheritance is because his wife is so hard to please and because he's got to like furnish her with all these beautiful things. And then what happens is when just out of, just out of, just for, just for shits and giggles, not even because he wants the money, Raddick blackmails them after the fact he, you know, suddenly decides that this woman has to be his, that she has to accept him as this. It's not enough for the police to understand. He's this is in the movie. She's got to, yeah, she's got to accept that he is better than anybody. She knows that he's a better man than her husband or anyone else. But yeah, that's, that's a complete, that's, that's completely absent from the book. That's just something that they did in the movie, which again is such a, that era of French crime film sort of change to make. In the book, it's uh, she's not that much of a character at all. But uh, in the book, his intense interior jubilation at watching uh, McGray try to figure him out is yeah. becomes the book once his character is introduced. As soon as he starts talking to McGray and saying, "Wow, it's crazy about this murder, huh? Let's let's go over this murder together and let me tell you a few things you probably don't know about this murder." You're just sitting there and you're like McGray the rest of the book, where you're just kind of silently trying to figure this guy out and not being able to do anything with it. McGray at one point says he would have been an anarchist throwing bombs at royalty 30 years earlier, but it was no longer fashionable. So this kind of guy can't rebel against society. He's just got to kind of rebel against law and order. He's got an existential sickness that I find very recognizable. Just somebody who's intelligent enough and he's a medical student, right? Who's who's a very, very promising student, but just can't get along with anybody. He sort of alienates everybody he meets is what he's he's known for doing as a medical student and seen as being a brilliant one. But he is a, a brilliant diagnostician specifically. Like he can look at somebody and say, oh, you probably got a family history of cancer, huh? Better watch out. <laughs> or, you yeah. Know, he's, like the yeah. handwriting guy, he's an expert at just being able to look at somebody and tell what's wrong. And with size them up very quickly. Yeah. Um, but he's he's very unhappy. He's just somebody who's looked at the universe and said, none of this is fair whatsoever. Look at this rich fucking nephew who's as poor as me, who's run out of money, this nephew. But they give him everything on credit just because he belongs to the milieu. Whereas if I order the three caviar sandwiches, I'm off to jail. That guy's drinking on a tab for years you know, and that he, he'll eventually need his aunt to die and get all of the money. And that's, that's his life. And there's something cosmically unfair about it. And also, uh, but it's not populist. He also finds Huertan to be a fool and sort of deserving of his fate as somebody who's overly simplistic and just willing to be used by the universe in his, in his way as well, that he, he doesn't, he has contempt for Huertan on top of it too, as just somebody that I, I, I should have dominion over people like Huertan in a little bit of ways. Not even that. It's just more, he, he has a real in tuneness with cruelty because he's so unhappy that he, the joy and jubilation of him is not thinking he's clever necessarily, but walking Magret through the senselessness of it all. 
That's mm -hmm. what he wants Magritte to understand is the senselessness of it. And um, one thing I do want to mention too, when we're talking about Seminon, these books have a great pre-code Hollywood feel. Like if that's to compare them to something, it's like the pre-code Hollywood movies, uh, like the, the Barbara Stanwyck movie, like Babyface, you know? There's a lot of, uh, of, of that sort of pre-code feel. There's talk about in these books about cocaine and heroin very casually, like a character just doing cocaine in the bar. And there's like brutality to the side details. Like they mention at a canal, that, uh, that they're not like alarmed by the police, like the canal workers aren't alarmed by the police fighting with the suspect, because that's a canal where just earlier in the week, a woman's paired of disembodied legs had floated up in a sack, you know, like there's those kind of like uh, uh, details all throughout this book. It has a, a pre-code nastiness to it in a lot mm -hmm. of ways that I really don't associate with um, much of any detective fiction of that era is it, it really goes it goes harder than a Raymond Chandler or a Dashiell Hammett I would say in terms of its offhanded mention of of really grotesque stuff but I think that that Simonon also as a writer has a very offhand interest in serial murder you know I think yeah. that, that he just has a very like hey sometimes people kill for sex that's that's a big part of the criminal <laughs> world you know well I will say What's funny about it, and the kind of one flaw of the book, maybe you'll disagree with me, is that the reason that McGray knows that Hortan could not be the killer is because he does not know the victims, right? There's no money stolen from the premises. Basically, you know, he has he just has no relation and no motive going into this. Yeah. Well, neither does Radic, really, <laughs> once it's all revealed, right? Ultimately, it's that Radic is not interested in the money, and Radic is a complete stranger who just happens to suggest this to the yeah. nephew once he realizes that you know here's my chance to murder somebody just to, to the experience of murdering somebody is something i would like to do so it's kind of funny that mcgray's <laughs> whole investigation is based on something that like well guess what the actual murderer he also is does not make any sense until you actually meet him and get under his skin Yes. And I would say you're right that it very much, his reaction is the profile doesn't fit the profile is what he thinks about where Tan is that he yes. goes, that's the moment he has with them. And one of the things that I, I think a lot about with this book and why I wanted to mention Agatha Christie and said, told you to read it before is for the comparison of this book is very much detective fiction. You know, this, the phrase transcends the genre, this book, does not transcend the genre. This book is very much of the genre. And there's even a later detail where Kirby, the nephew, right? Um, he ends up in his aunt's house sneaking in because he's been manipulated to go there by Raddock, right? At the same moment that McGray stops by just to look at the crime scene again, like a week after the crime. And that is the kind of detective novel coincidence that power something like Raymond Chandler, where, you know, the long goodbye is nothing but him showing up right after a crime has happened and then getting hit on the head. That's all that happens in that book, if I'm remembering correctly, <laughs> yeah. is that he shows yeah. up right after something interesting has happened and there's still somebody there who hits him on the head. Um, but, and, and, and I'm not sure if I can explain why it feels better or more acceptable to me in Simonon than it does in things like Chandler, you know? Um, but it does I, to I, me. I, I think Simonon is just not as interested 
in the investigation angle you know absolutely early, early on mcgray says either he's mad or he's innocent talking about her tent right and yeah. i guess the kind of the, the the missing piece of the puzzle there is that well there are two people one of them is innocent and one of them is mad you know those are the yeah. two people who are involved in this and once he realizes that there's a madman behind it everything is going to you know finally make sense so, but but he's definitely more interested in the kind of psychological profile of Raddick than you know, hey, was it suicide or murder when you know Kirby he finds Kirby's body? It doesn't seem like something he really wants us to be thinking about. Well, it's also great. That scene is great too. And when I talk about what makes Simonon a special writer, right? Kirby is in the house. There's a shots that fired out. McGray has got to bust down the door. He finds. Uh, Kirby with his face blown off. Looks like he swallowed his revolver and shot himself because he thinks the law is closing in right on him in some way. Most books would, as soon as he finds the body, immediately cut to the next scene where it's a crime scene cordoned off. All the paramedics are there. The other detectives. Now tell me what happened here, McGray. That's where most books and most TV shows cut to immediately. Instead, in this book, we get this moment of him wandering around the house and feeling deeply alone. Like as he's waiting, he calls it in and he's got nothing to do. So we get, we spend time with him. It doesn't cut away where he sort of walks around this house and he's hanging around a dead body and just sort of feeling lonely in this house where this old woman has lived. And she's basically after her husband has died, set herself up on the second floor. So the first floor where the murder happened or where the suicide happened, he feels completely lonely and shuttered up. It feels out of use. And just the way he describes, he finally notices some of like the decoration, like some tasteless plaster sculptures and stuff like that while he's walking around. It's a great moment. It's a really special moment to just have him lingering. And I think that's actually what makes Simonon special. And in fact, I went through, when I was coming across these, these moments, right? Because when we talk about uh, Night at the Crossroads, Nui de Carrefour, right? There's a moment where Magret has to walk from one sort of small town to a little farm nearby in it. And there's a line that's something like, and a yellow butterfly led him along the way right? It's a very simple sentence, but it's so evocative and it's just puts you there. He doesn't waste time describing spaces. He doesn't waste a lot of time um, trying to describe people, what they're wearing, what the rooms look like and things like that. Instead, he tries to find the perfect details, right? And just the most evocative details to give up uh, a, a space and just sort of give you a, um, a good sense of the space. And so like, here's one where he's waiting for where Tani's watching him. And it says at three in the afternoon, he was still in the same place, his glasses on his knees and an empty beer glass by his side. In spite of the open window, the room reeked of tobacco smoke. And that's the only description we get, but it puts you in the place so well, there's half a beer and the smell of tobacco smoke, right? That's the kind of very brief, thing that puts you in the place so heavily, you know, just puts you in the place so uh, good, right? And then another place where he's again watching the hotel says, uh, his pipe had fallen on the floor and some glowing tobacco was burning the carpet. Like that's the only detail you need to put you in that scene. Just there's the rest of that entire page is dialogue and simple action. There's no other description of anything. That's the only description of anything. It's all dialogue and simple action, like 
turning head, telephone ringing, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And so when he does put that, you can just see it perfectly. He's dropped his pipe because he's so worked up about what's happening out through the window and the glowing tobacco is burning the carpet. I just love little details like that. And I wrote one more down in here. Oh, this is, this is actually, I wrote this one down because this is like as descriptive as he gets, right? This is one of his big paragraphs. Like this is the most description you will get in an entire book, which is Paris wore its dismal mid-October aspect. A raw light fell from a sky that was like a dirty ceiling. The pavement still showed traces of the previous night's rain and the passersby had the resentful look of people who were not yet used to the idea that summer was over. That's it. That's like him. That's his blowout show off paragraph. You know, that's, that's the biggest he goes, you know what yeah. I mean? And I'd made note of that dirty ceiling line thinking like, Oh, here we go. Here's where it's going to really start giving us a little ambience and like kind of get a little more prose going in here, but you're right. It, that doesn't happen again. Like that's pretty much his in and out right there of like, this is how the rest of the book is. This is what you should be thinking about for the rest of the book. Paris under this dirty ceiling, you know, with the, at the end of summer, yeah. it's, it's very evocative and very, like you said, very minimalist in a very effective way. And just the still wet pavement, still wet pavement, dirty sky, and you're there, you know, it does remind me a lot too of, um, you know, Eric Romer, who was very provincial guy. He liked the provinces of France, hated Paris. And uh, he always shoots Paris to be like gray and ugly, you know, because that's how he feels about it. He says that there's a special gray that only exists in Paris, right? And I think about that when I read that sentence. I'm just there in the gray of Paris, of Eric Romer's Paris, so <laughs> completely with that little line. Um, there, there, are other, there are other indications that this is a conscious attempt to do something different than the standard detective book mainly through the Raddick character, obviously, where he throws out misleading evidence like, are you sure that Kirby killed himself, McGray? You know, and, and things that are just like, but just come off as completely, you know, with, without any kind of assertion or any kind of actual well, truth he has, to them. Simenon has, has a, an aversion to red herrings. When we meet Raddick, we know the mystery is solved, right? Yeah. There's mm -hmm. never any doubt that this is the guy. We know he engineered it and he's going to taunt McGray until he's caught and the truth is revealed. And that's what the rest of the book is. There, there's no question that it is not a red herring, Raddick. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? There's just no question. And in general, he doesn't really offer up these simple that kind of simple misdirection. He's not trying to fool the audience the way that an Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, even early Edgar Allan Poe are trying to trick an audience. He's not really trying to trick you, which I think is what I really like about these books. He, he is interested in the, the mystery of it, but also, like you say, he's not interested in detective work. He, he rips through those detective revelations quickly you know what I mean? Like, it might even it... be actively critical of them. I mean, one of the last things that happens is McGray sitting down to write his report and he starts by writing the outstanding feature of this case and then decides, nah, that's too pompous for me. Yeah, exactly. And that's the contrast to like Poirot where it's like, everybody get in here. I'm going to explain how this murder was done, where he calls all the suspects into the room, you know, mm -hmm. just yeah. before they're about to, to head on out. They think they've gotten away with it, but death on the Nile. You know what I mean? He, nope. He calls everyone into the hotel lobby to explain what's happened or everybody into the train car. 
you know, and then really takes you through piece by piece. But by the time we get to the end of these, the explanations are very simple with only one or two things that need to be clarified. You know, yeah, not yeah, simple. It's... They're very convoluted. These are very <laughs> convoluted books. They're just as convoluted as Christie. But by the time we get to the reveal, we've sorted it out, basically. And McGree doesn't have to be clever or, you know, do anything that is superhuman detective. All he needs to do, yeah. he realizes all he needs to do is give Raddick enough rope to, to hang himself, basically. Raddick is almost trying to force uh, a detective narrative to this thing where he sets up the nephew's wife to nephew's widow to go to the house and get the knife the murder weapon under blackmail you know under blackmail gets her to go there to to fetch it and shows and brings mcgray there to say look what she what is she doing what could she possibly be doing looks like she's retrieving the murder weapon and running away with it you know it's like yeah. and mcgray refusing to to fall for that really pathetic bait but there's also the great moment. One of my favorite moments in the book is when he asks Radic a question. Finally, he gets annoyed by him and then immediately regrets it. That's such mm -hmm. a great thing. Like that wouldn't happen to Sherlock Holmes to just get us so annoyed that he asks a question that sort of <laughs> shows that he doesn't know what the hell is going on, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's something about McGray too, is that as a character, he doesn't really seem to have a thought in his head. A lot of the lines you get are McGray thought nothing or McGray said nothing to that. He's almost like Parker, right? In the Parker novels, you know, where it's like mm. somebody will say something and McGray said nothing in return, you know? Um, and he so he's got it all figured out. And then there's a chapter that's literally called McGray gets talkative. <laughs> yes. Yes. But it, it doesn't, he's not written like he knows inside his head what's going on. And if I, as a writer, I'm going to toy with the audience until I reveal it. He seems genuinely uncertain up until the conclusions, right. right? He seems to sort of put it together almost at the same pace as the audience, you know, and he does seem uh, nervous and they're, they're, Frequently, like any detective novels, the conclusions are very sudden and sometimes totally out of left field. Yellow Dog, which I mentioned, is a very famous one. That has an ending that's like, wait, what the fuck are you telling me? Like, you did not set, you set 0% of this up. I mean, you introduced all of these people, but, you sure. know, like this solution, and it's a very simple solution. When he does the solution, you're like, oh, that makes sense. It's almost too simple for a mystery novel which is maybe why the joke, maybe that's the, the joke of it, why people like it is that it's a simple drug ring. That's it. They killed somebody because it's a drug ring, you know, yeah. and all of the other leads that point towards something more complicated are not it. They're just Coke smugglers in a coastal town, you know? And, uh, and it's, uh, it's the same, you know, it's. It moves past to what it what should be the, the bombshell, right? The big crackerjack yeah. piece of evidence, which is that, the reason that the body, you know, fell from the bed to the floor is that her tan, you know, came in and felt was feeling around in the dark and touched the body and it fell over is, you know, such like a thing. It's glossed over so quickly in this. It's funny to see it uh, in the movie in Tete Holm where yeah. it becomes such a big deal, you know, yeah. compared to the way that they use it in the book. Yeah. Well, Tete Holm, we should talk about and maybe transition into talking about, uh, the movies in general made from his work a little bit because I think that'd be a nice thing to do because you're an amateur to kind of talk about him in some global scale too. A lot of the movies try and fix the books, 
right? And Duvivier really, the main thing he does is he tries to fix the plot structure, which is he lays it out more in a linear, regular way, which is that we open with the nephew in the cafe receiving the anonymous note offering to kill his aunt. And then we see Huertan and Raddick planning it and how Huertan gets set up and why he thinks he's going to get a note to get out of prison, right? or not even get out of prison, but to be saved from the cops. And it goes through in direct order. And then like a half an hour in, McGray is introduced to it and starts putting together. And you see him doing the shoe leather investigative stuff that is mentioned in passing in the book as though it's already happened. By the time we hear that there's a boot with a number on it, we know it's already been traced. Instead of this complicated uh, rear screen projection sequence that De Vivier films where he's going around tracing where the boot came from and the, the stuff at the crime scene and interrogating the maid, that kind of stuff, Simonon is never going to have in his book, those sort of standard detective scene stuff. And you can really feel De Vivier thinking, oh, I've got to fix this. He's made a mistake, right? And <laughs> I need to fix all of this, you know? Yeah, the the engineered escape of Hortan doesn't happen until nearly halfway through the movie. Think, yeah, right? yeah. And I think that one of the things that a lot of people get wrong in adapting Simonon, which is really essential, which is that his novels are usually oriented through the perspective of a single character. In the McGray books, it's obviously McGray. We stay with McGray 98% of the time in this book. I don't know if there's a single scene or moment in this book that is not oriented from McGray's perspective, even when there's nothing going on, even when he's just sitting in the hotel room looking at nothing and like, stale tobacco smoke is all we've got from that yeah, scene. I, I think Hurtan getting the note at the beginning and escaping is the only thing that's not through McGray's perspective. But we know that McGray's watching him. Right, we right, know right. That's the quick reveal. But that's the only time that's ever like even in another character's head for, for that yes. length of time. Yes, that's true. And um, and that's what makes de Vivier's film feel like very wrong to me is you do spend times with John Vier or Lucas just like, you know, hitting the shoe leather, talking to people that, and definitely spend a lot of time with Raddick outside of the context of McGray and definitely spend a lot of time out oriented outside of this character. You know, I think that there's, there's a lot of things wrong with the movie too, where this is something that we were just talking about. I'm really interested in why this director who's made a lot of movies that I like, and I even like A Man's Head. I just don't like it in comparison to the book. Julian de Vivier, who made Pepe Lamoco and Panique and a bunch of good movies, why he's not a genius and why his stuff isn't good, essentially, you know? Yeah, and I was even explaining to my wife how the changes, you know, that, they, that he makes for the movie. And she's like, so you like the movie better than the book? And I said, well... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm explaining it like those were good changes. <laughs> yeah, and he's very stylish and he's very like stylistically clever at times. And some things are filmed in an amazing way and he gets good performances out of people. Although I think that McGray is very miscast. The actor that they have playing McGray, um, Harry Bauer, I just think is not great casting for them. McGray is a big, heavy, imposing guy who throws his weight around literally like he's just somebody who walks in a room and you sort of have to make way for him and he's got that big bearish grumpiness that when he's unhappy it alters the tone of the room and this guy's a little sad sack long faceness you know to him 
No, and, I agree. And I think he's not great casting, but also just, you know, leaving McGray's perspective behind the movie suffers from having no perspective whatsoever. I think that 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 ends up being the problem of bad Simonon adaptations is when they don't have the good perspective to them. And mm. you can see Panique works because it stays with Michel Simon basically the whole time. It's basically done from, from his perspective uh, or certainly the most effective parts. Again, it spends time with the other secondary characters. And, and certainly that's a book that spends a lot of time with the woman he's spying on and the Sandrine Bonaire character. I think if anything, the, the Patrice LeConte film switches it to have it be her movie, you know, but the, the more solidly you can locate it in a perspective, um, I think the better off it is. Uh, and De Vivier also, and, you know, I think of him as outside of Renoir and, and Ed Carnet. I think that he is a lesser director than, than they are, even though, again, Pepe Lamoco and other films he made are great. I yeah. think that he's trying to kind of reach that sort of poetic cinema that they have. And in doing that, what he does in this film specifically is, again, he, he really makes a huge deal about Raddick's disease in a way that we're supposed to think like it's a societal disease, like crime being this rotting thing yeah. that exists that has to be, you know, taken out by these expert surgeons who are the police or just the characterization of Hurtan with, with, where he steals the bread from the little girl like he's Frankenstein's monster. I know, it's crazy how that scene is filmed. <laughs> that's that's he's, the moment. And it's a really cool, stylish looking scene. It's sort of like, you can't, you kind of can't, fault him for doing it that way you know <laughs> yeah but he turns them into tropes almost you know he doesn't like it doesn't some it's not something that comes john naturally. please use the word trope correctly trope <laughs> just means like... metashore metaphor <laughs> you mean cliche i don't know why there's this entire culture-wide brain damage trope just means metaphor cliche or stereotype is the word <laughs> you're looking for yeah but he turns them into standards you know i yeah. mean these are things that when they happen in a Renoir film, are so natural and part of that world that he's created. I think that Duvier, for whatever reason, just can't reach that level of naturalized filmmaking. That, and it's not even that it's a Simonon adaptation, because as we've already said, Renoir made a very natural feeling Simonon adaptation on his own. That, I that... think that he's trying to put these things in there. It feels forceful in a way that they should. Not only is it against the story he's telling, but he's just not up to the task. The, the things like the front projection or the rear projection, rather, when he's investigating feel like forced aesthetics to me. Or like the super close up when Raddick's running away into traffic, that sort of yeah. almost Spike Lee-ish yeah. body cam close up of that yeah. thing. Uh, and it's, I think there is something that's hard. I was thinking about why is it hard to adapt Simonon correctly. And I do think that he's he's a remarkable writer in an ineffable way. And I do think that it's it's the same problem when you go to adapt Dostoevsky or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or somebody like that, that is such an incredible voice and perspective and point of view that there's just something about his essence as a reminder as a writer that's that's too remarkable to be easily adapted unlike christie or raymond chandler that have these very plot heavy books that almost call out 
to be adapted. These, the, these books that you read that feel like they're begging to be adapted, you know? Well, that was kind of the surprise for me reading the book, reading a Simonon book for the first time was because I knew Tete Ohm, uh, I and Blue Room and Betty movies yeah. like that. I always just, and, and even Magnet of Doom, the Melville movie, I, I kind of just felt like this must be something that Simonon is known for this idea of this, this rot of crime that exists, you know, yeah. that like ruins these people that they're trying to just escape from this existential prison that they're in. And I don't really get that from the book. I think that that's something that, you know, the movie affects that isn't necessarily a similar, again, there's only read the one book. So I don't know if some of the hard novels would have that kind of a thing to them. We can talk a little about the hard novels later, but I would say the McGray books are about McGray getting to know people through conversation and observation of them. That's what they're about. They're about getting to know people, the suspects, the victims, the all of everyone involved through conversation and observation. They're almost like Richard Linkletter movies in that way, where the talking to them and looking at people in their environments is what the, the deal is. That's what the whole story is, right? Is you're just hearing people talk with each other. And I think that's because Simonon as a person, as a writer, he himself was interested in the idea of living different lives, of actually living different lives. Like he, he has this quote that's something like, is it possible to be both a farmer who really farms and, and a fisherman who's really a fish, who really fishes and a writer who really writes? Is it possible to be all of these different people? And I feel like that desire to be everyone else is what drives my work. It's what, to me, uh, end of quote, to me, what I think he's talking about is what Milan Kunder would call the idea of a novel being a bunch of experimental selves, where you're trying to live out different lives through all of these different selves you're creating in your characters. You're not a god creating a world, you're a performer sort of performing different options, not even a performer, because there's no audience. You're trying to inhabit different lives, you know? And he does in fact insist, sometimes uh, interviewers will be like, how can you write all these different milieus? And he'll say, I've lived the way these characters have lived. I've been incredibly poor, I lived under uh, occupation. Uh, I've been a carouser. I've lived in the criminal world. I've done drugs. In his terms, he's not a tourist to these things. And I was actually thinking about, I was rereading Canberra Lucidia just to bounce through every fucking thought I had this week about this book. And uh, Roland Barthes talks about the difference between when you look at the photo and the difference between your desire to travel to where the photo was taken and to inhabit the place where the photo was taken and live there. And I think that a lot of detective novelists write like tourists and Simonon writes like someone who is living there, who is trying to live there, who is trying to imagine himself being this person and inhabiting that world and becoming them. I think he's literally wants to become these people. And that, and so that's why the, the consistency of perspective in a movie becomes really important and consistency of perspective really matters because you are trying to inhabit it. And the movies don't, don't keep up with that very well. The movies well, well, don't I was gonna say to that's a that very, very difficult thing to maintain in a movie. I mean, that's really setting the filmmaker up for a, for a task, you know? <laughs> to, and maybe that's the reason that they can't capture Simonone the way that the novels do. Yeah. 
what John, what do you, what do you think when I watch the movie and I read the book and the, the movie and the book are pretty close together in terms of plot mechanics with a few, not major departures, but meaningful departures. What, what do you think it means for an artwork to be contrived? Because I feel like there's ways in which the book is more contrived than the movie, but the book doesn't feel contrived to me, despite being as obviously contrived as any detective fiction, whereas the movie feels hugely contrived to me. What do you think, what do you think that word means? What do you think the difference is? Well, again, I would just have to say it's the forcing of these themes that maybe don't belong in the story. I think that Simonon, once we meet Radic, the book becomes about Radic, but we never know who he is. Like we are the whole gimmick, the whole, the whole setup of that book is that we are trying to penetrate this man's head, that we're trying to understand <laughs> what this guy is. And we're with McRae and that we want to understand how he operates and how ultimately he's going to fall. I think that once the movie becomes about Radic, when he's reintroduced, because as you said, we see him actually committing the crime or having just committed the crime at the beginning of the movie, once he re-enters the movie and it becomes about him, again, there is this forced thing where it's about his downtrodden life and there's a little bit of class mashup there. There's a part where they're taking uh, Herton out uh, to... I can't remember the driving, just where, where he's going to escape, but they pass like yeah. Louis the 16th's like country cottage that he's staring at outside. It's all a POV yes. shot outside the car. And it's like, you know, he must be thinking about, you know, his low, his, his low station in life. You know, yes. he's not some fancy fucking guy. And these are themes that I feel are contrived. I feel like there are things that they are kind of forcing on to these characters to make us feel a certain way about them, but it's not necessary and i think the minimalism of simonon and the fact that he doesn't want us to sympathize necessarily with the criminal but rather just try to understand him that to me feels like a much more correct way to tell this story oh that makes me think of two things one is the quote from simonon which is but it's not only a question of the artist looking into himself but also of looking into others with the experience he has of himself he writes with sympathy because he feels that the other man is like him, which is exactly what you just said, essentially, uh, there, where he's genuinely trying to understand Radic. One thing that I also think the movies get wrong, that when you talk about movification of things and contrivance, you mentioned the drive by the palace, right? Which is, uh, if it happens in the book, it's like a sentence. It's not a big deal. But there's another adaptation of this book called The Man on the Eiffel Tower, right? which is so wrong. And I realized Simonon wouldn't write about the Eiffel Tower. He wouldn't write about the palace that gets made a big deal of in the, in the uh, de Vivier adaptation. And he wouldn't write about the fucking Eiffel Tower and have a chase up the Eiffel Tower like happens in the, the other one, which was uh, ghost directed by Charles Lawton. He directed scenes on it. The only thing he directed other than uh, Night of the Hunter, which you revealed to me on the episode we did, but for it, pl it plays McGray, right? And plays McGray, and he's a, he's okay casting. He's pretty good as McGray. I mean, he's a great actor. I trust him to do virtually any role. Although I think Pierre Renoir is the best casting that I've seen of of McGray, who's in 
Lanui to care for. But in, um, in the book, he doesn't have these landmarks like the Eiffel Tower and the palace. The main thing he writes about that gets mentioned is the Pont de Saint Cloud, right? The Saint mm-hmm. Cloud Bridge. Uh, which they keep going around. That's like the only Parisian landmark that gets mentioned multiple times in this book. Which well, is, the scene also, but again, that's a misdirection, right? The he, the Seine. Well, the Seine he, goes through Paris, but the, let me just say about well, this. He, well, he throws out specifically, you know, all these locations oh, yes. are on the Seine, and it's another way of being like, so there must be some connection to the geography, and it turns out, no, that's just bullshit. That's just more stuff that he's. That's something out there. that Raddick is trying right. to make it. Matt Raddick is like writing the bad detective novel and the bad detective right. novel vengeance on the scent. But I looked up the Saint Cloud Bridge because I was curious why it keeps getting mentioned, and it's nothing. It's very unimpressive bridge. It's just a totally unremarkable bridge, and I love that. That's what the book revolves around in some way. Is not you know, the famous canal or the, you know, or the museum. It's not at the Louvre, you know, it's avoiding all of those things that sort of directors like Hitchcock or writers like Agatha Christie love to set their stories at, to have people hanging off of Mount Mount Rushmore, you know, or Mm -hmm. the Statue of Liberty. He does not do that. His book is going to take place around some bridge that people in Paris haven't even fucking heard of, I'm sure. You know, it's just, it's just some bridge is the only way to describe it. Which is, uh, which is one of the things also that I think makes him uh, remarkable uh, as, a, as a writer or interesting as a writer. You know, there's just something about, I feel like it's overstating it to call it realism within this book, but it's a somehow he manages to avoid contrivance and things that feel like contrived. There's something about these books that, that's what I'm trying to say is I don't think they're realistic or notably more realistic but they somehow drain out the feeling of contrivance out of them, you know? Yeah, no, it's great. I, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to reading some more McGray's because it's such a breeze. I mean, you could really take it out in a day if you know you had nothing else to do. They're, 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 if they're all as breezy and easy as this, and I think you're right. I think I could have read three or four more by the time we were sat down to talk about it. They, this is a, this is a good one. I would say this is among the best, but they're all super, they're all super easy. And just before we move on to the movies, I, I'd like to say the thing that I like best about this book and what I think ultimately separates McGray from other detectives is that McGray is bothered by Raddick, is that there's no sense that he's gotten the bad guy and putting the monster back in the box. This book is in some ways about the unknown known and the criminal you cannot get. This book is about cosmic injustice. And that's specifically what Raddick is interested in. But McGray is aware of it too, you know? And that final chapter, which is um, the, the, the execution chapter, which reminds me of the end of Cask Door, obviously, is such a great chapter and so good. But the final line of the book, so McGray has gone to the execution on Raddick's request. Raddick is like, wants to have this dignified walk up to the guillotine and he slips and falls, right? And has to be helped up to his feet. And so I forget what the exact line is, but it's like, well, that ruined everything, didn't it? And he's supposed to go home and have dinner with his wife in their cozy little dining room. And the, and the final chapter of the book is, and somehow without knowing why he could not face it. Instead, he went directly to the Quai des Offer where he started poking the fire so viciously that he nearly broke his precious stove which is the end of the book is that he's upset by everything that's happened with Raddick. And that's something you can't picture with 
Columbo or Jessica Fletcher or Philip Marlowe or anything like that. You know, even in the more fatalistic detective novels, they don't have that sense of the detective being really broken by it in some way. Maybe the end of Chinatown, you know, maybe, maybe that's the most comparable moment to the end of this book, but it really is just about this sort of cosmic unfairness that, that so much of crime is about something that is just implacably unjust in this world. He has this quote actually about he himself and what he tries to do as a writer that I think applies to McGray's feelings there at the end, which is some readers would still like to read very reassuring novels, novels which give them a comforting view of humanity. It can't be done. Right. And he's talking about how writing has to be in the modern world. Do you want to talk about the movies a little? If you'd like to, I don't, yeah, I don't know what, how you want to approach it. Uh, the way I would like to approach it, I think is that, um, well, what I'd like to talk about the movies is because we're, we're talking Simonon and the adaptations, the film adaptations are such a huge part of it. It's a little bit, again, like I keep talking about Agatha Christie, but if you're talking about her or, or Sherlock Holmes, like the adaptations are a big part of it and a big part of his legacy is that they love um, adapting him, right? Um, with the movies, uh, he famously had a lot of problems with the adaptations of his movies. He was very enthusiastic in 31, 32. You have the first two adaptations that we talked about, Night at the Crossroads and one of Yellow Dog. They were both bombs. They didn't work at the box office. So then he decided to do his own adaptation of Tete de Nome, right? And I've heard, I saw an interview with his son who told the story like he got it all set up, he got it all cast out, was all ready to go, and then the financing fell apart, so he wouldn't sell any of his books for the next six years. What I don't understand is he seems to be describing the version of Tet Nome that got made in 1933. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure what Simonon's involvement with that movie was, but the casting of it is quite good, actually. So if he was involved in that way, he did a good job. But so Simonon stopped letting his books uh, be made into movies for, you know, uh, six years, for half a dozen years, right? Then they all start getting adapted. And he said that his, he has a great quote too, which he, is he said that his change in attitude was, I realized it doesn't matter whether one turns my sheep into goats, so long as one pays the highest price for the fleece. <laughs> right. That he sort of, he stops, he stops being involved in the uh, adaptations. He stops caring. He just sells them to whoever. So let me ask you, what are your favorite adaptations of him? What do you think that not knowing how they're supposed to be adapted? What are some of the ones that really stand out to you as excellent movies just on their own terms? Not only how they're supposed to be adapted, but again, there's just a question of what the connection of some of these films are. If you told me there's supposed to be a connection between Magnet of uh, Doom and The Man from London, you know, for example. I would be, I would not be able to <laughs> just off the top of my head say <laughs> how those films are supposed to be connected because yeah, the approaches seem to always be different. I mean, if you said something like Magnet of Doom and Betty, the Chabrol film, at least they could say, well, old, old person, younger person, you know, conflict. Alcoholism. Sort Alcohol, of yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of just an existential kind of... Uh, recasting the oneself in the role you know kind of taking over for the old person but 
I, I think my favorite one is the um, and, and and again I don't know how to say if this is the correct one, but it's the Blue Room adaptation by Matthew Amalric from yeah. 2014. It's such a good movie. It's somehow really sleazy and entertaining at the same time. Like it doesn't go too far. Like you're definitely kind of grossed out by this world that he creates, but at the same time, it's fun. You know, it's fun to like follow it along. And it's not a detective movie. It's more like I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear Blue Room is one of the hard novels. It is. You know? It's one of the okay. Roman Durst. I think any yeah. of his non-McGray novels after 34, he considers a Roman Durst. But that's the kind of movie, it's funny, there's another color-based movie, Red Lights, uh, that was made in uh, 2004 by Cedric Kahn yeah. that uh, was also very good. But again, yes. not what I thought of as like the kind of traditional Simonon idea. It's not really a detective story. It's not really even that crime-based. It's more a lot more of like a character, like a chamber piece more than anything. Sort yeah. of like a human behavior, people behaving badly sort of scenario. That's my so favorite of his uh, of. of his Roman Durs that I've read. That's that's my favorite of the hard novels that I've read. It's a really great book. About, Red Lights uh, is yeah of alcoholism. Uh -huh. Those I think I think those are very um, reasonable choices. Did you know that in two thousand one they remade Magnet of Doom with Belmondo in the Charles Vanell role? No, I had no idea. Yes, it's based on Lan de Frechot, and they remade it in two thousand one. Uh, yeah, I've never seen it. Again, this is the kind of thing where there's just so much that you can't really see it all or know what it's about. And you'll constantly be, like I mentioned, the, the one starring Rowan Atkinson from 2017. Like every time you turn around, there's a shocking Simonon thing that's now on your radar that hasn't been there before. And a lot of them do have very surprising pedigrees like, you know, Charles Lawton ghost directing them or... John Belmondo reprising a role from his youth in that. Um, I we think... just did a podcast about Jean Gabin. I had no idea he played McGray, what, like 20 times in movies. I mean, he's probably the most prolific of actors to play that role. I don't I don't know if he played it that many times. I, I've seen him. In, I've seen yeah. him in three because I and I think that if you want to see Gabin, he did a ton of Simonon movies. Maybe that's um, what I'm thinking of. Ton of yeah, not necessarily McGray, but yeah, a ton of Sim Sim Simonon adaptations. And I, um, the best if you want to see my favorite of the Jean Gabbana's McGray movies, it's McGray sets a trap uh, because he reteams with Lino Ventura as the that's antagonist. Right. It's a Grisby yeah. reteaming. Um, he also his other most notable uh, um, Simonon is in case of emergency, which also sometimes gets called Love Is My Profession, and it is famous for Bridget Bardot, Brigitte Bardot being just off the charts hot in it. It is unreal how all of the movies she was in in that era played to her sexiness, but that movie really just, it, it's, it's notable for being like, she's a sex bomb that cannot be diffused. Like that shit's just going to go off. In yeah. It. And that's like late fifties. So before she became sort of a parody of herself, you know, yeah. in some of the later movies. It's also so. notable for being, um, it's basically the only uh, Autant Laura movie that Truffaut liked too. He was somebody that Truffaut loved to kick the shit out of. And he likes <laughs> that one. I always thought, you know, with, with Gaban playing McGray though, that it was um, more of a case of just like, let's take the most famous actor in France and give him the most famous role in, you know, detective literature. 
and France more than sure. it being a case of great casting. It's just sort of like Leonardo DiCaprio being the lead in Shutter Island. You're not like, oh, perfect. It's more like, yeah, seems like they'd do that. That seems like what would happen if they <laughs> yeah. if they could, they'd make him. Or, or even more so like when they were developing Spider-Man, you know, when James Cameron was making it and the idea that Leonardo DiCaprio should be Spider-Man because he's the hottest star right now. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. that that neighborhood kind of kind of vibe as far as the essential movies we've talked about a lot of them already uh, night at the crossroads is one of my favorites one of my favorite Renoir movies uh, very low-key and captures the low-keyness of Seminon, which i think you can understand now i don't know if you'll get more out of that movie having read a little Seminon because it i would is definitely so like to revisit it now that i have yeah absolutely yeah it's just so understated we mentioned both versions of uh monger here are good um, and then Blue Room, I think, is one of the really fantastic ones. And maybe the other essential would be The Clockmaker of St. Paul with um, Philippe Noray in it, who uh, is, uh, he actually would have made a good McGray. And I don't know if he ever played him or not. Um, and just to illustrate how unwieldy Simonon's body of work is, I'm both a big fan of Claude Chabrol and Simonon. And there's a movie called The Hatter's Ghost, which I had never seen nor heard of until just recently. Like that's, that's, I didn't even know this thing existed and the book is out of print. And the film is very hard to find. Chabrol did do um, Betty in 1992, which I know a lot of people love. It's based on Seminon. I think it's absolutely his weakest movie from that era. I think that it's just world-class, awful drunk acting throughout that film that's and i went and watched it again because i know you like that one you like betty right i I like betty a lot yeah i was gonna say it's nice because there are very few things we disagree on and so it's nice that there's a chevrolet movie that i like and you don't (laughs) i went and watched it again because i trust your taste on things and i think she just stinks i think trentignon's daughter is she just stinks man i think that she's the whole problem with the movie it's actually funny and um in ebert's review of that movie he talks about how Chabrol and Simonon went out to dinner one day and Simonon said to Chabrol, this is back in the seventies. I don't know why directors even bother with plots in their movies. You can just point the camera at someone interesting. And that's an entire story. If you get an interesting face and an interesting actor, right? You just, the audience just wants to watch them to see what they'll do next. And then Ebert's positive review is like, and he got such an actress two decades later with this great young actress. My whole problem is, is I don't want to watch her do anything. I don't want to watch her do a single goddamn thing (laughs) is my problem with that movie. Um, Red Lights, uh, like I said, probably my favorite of the Roman Durs. And I think that movie's pretty good too. Um, You know, the hard novels in general are, he thought of his best novels, but, and, you know, I've only read a handful of them. I've only read like seven or eight. I, you know, I think it's again, one of those cases where like, they're not like the McGray stuff is really special and those things are hit and miss. Um, there's a cool movie, uh, the cat, which again, I saw on your recommendation with Gabin again and Simone Signorette. And it's a very interesting film. And it's, I think it's the most personal of the movies based on him. Cause it's based on, Uh, his own relationship with his mom, who was a woman who just like, he hated and dominated his life, but he couldn't live without and just was like, completely caught up with. Was his mom also a former circus performer? (laughs) That I don't know. I think she was like a school teacher or something. His family has a very like, (laughs) generic 
background in that way. Um, and then there's another famous one that I'm not super hot on is Widow Koderik, which uh, is again, Simone Signoret again, and Alan Delone this time. And that one has like Clockmaker St. Paul, those both feel like they're leading up to a twist and reveal that never comes. Both of them feel like, oh, there's some mystery here that's going to be resolved by the end because there's everyone's so terse and it feels like we're not being told the whole story, but no, we're being told the whole story. <laughs> and people really like that one. I think it's a, a pretty, pretty mediocre. Man from London, the Bellatar movie with Tilda Swinton is a very, very interesting one. I'm talking about the 2007 version, not 1943. Um, and it's interesting too, because Simonon rarely got taken on by like titanic figures of art cinema. You know, like Godard didn't do Simonon. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and you know Tarkovsky didn't do Simonon. They he didn't get uh, taken on by the big ones. He kind of gets taken on by journeymen and sort of sub great directors like De Vivier. And so seeing Bellatar do Simonon is interesting. Um, but the results are mainly puzzling, which is like most of Tar's movies are mainly just puzzling, where a lot of the ideas to leave deliberately leave you hanging on the idea of what's the idea here you know what i mean mm -hmm. movies like it's a good movie and it features some of his most exquisite tracking shots but it's definitely not simonon you know it's definitely just not what that is and other than that like he's got a lot of adaptations but i think if you want to start with the movies uh those that's probably enough to dig into right for sure. And you've seen most of those, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen most of them. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you. I think I'd go Blue Room and Red Lights uh, and Night at the Crossroads are really the ones I find most interesting. But again, it's telling. None of those are knock you out of the theater masterpieces. You know what I mean? One of the ones that I have never seen and would be really curious about is a rare American adaptation, The Brothers Rico, directed by Phil Carlson. Oh, really? like 1957. Yeah does not have many big stars. Richard Conti is the star. And what did uh, Phil Carlson direct? You're a big Phil Carlson fan. What are some of the, the classics? Phil, Phil Carlson uh, directed Kansas City Confidential. He directed uh, Phoenix City Story. Uh, what else? He directed Ben, the uh, great uh, Willard sequel. Yeah. Walking Tall, of course. Yeah. So some definitely some classics. Uh, but this one I've never seen. So I'd be curious about it. Yeah, me too. The American adaptations, I'm trying to, to think if there's any of them. He, he's again, he's like a, a major literary figure in Europe and France. André Gide, when he died, was preparing a critical study of Simenon, and he called him one of the, what's the exact Gide quote from it? Uh, Gide called him, and Gide called him like the greatest novelist of the 20th century or something like that, Gide, mm. which is to contextualize him. That's crazy when you think about it. He, you know, one thing we haven't touched on is he's obviously not very well known in the United States. The other mystery writers and figures we've been talking about, I would say, are much better known than him here, that he's, if anything, he's a minor figure. I would think most people aren't familiar with him in the United yeah. States. I mean, yeah. you're a big he, reader and you had never read anything. I know. Well, again, it's just, it's overwhelming just thinking of where to start, but that's crazy. He's saying that about Simonon. This might not be a perfect analogy, but it almost feels like J.D. Salinger calling Stephen King the greatest American writer, you know? It's yes. like, huh, wow. That's, 
That's 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 high praise. That's well, I was almost going to pair Lafcadio's adventure with uh, this book as my appetizer because I really think that, that the, yeah, that the 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 antagonist in that book is very much erratic type character of somebody who just has an existential sickness that he's that that in cloud he's just spewing out on everyone around him you know uh but i thought i'd rather the christie is actually more to the point but that but if you want a second uh aperitif pairing lafcadio's adventure by andre gide i think is a, is a good one and straight as the gate would also be uh would also be a good pairing i think that they have a similar moral sensibility. If you think about it and then think about Gide's books, it makes more sense, but you're right. It's like hearing, you know, I don't even, it's, it's hard to come up with comparisons. It's like hearing William Faulkner say that Raymond Chandler is the greatest American novelist. You'd be yeah, like, what that's the fuck? More on the money. You yeah. know, you'd mm-hmm. be like, really? That guy thought <laughs> that? It's just, it's beyond that, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. Um. And I would, you know, I think we can go into our dessert pairings. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about the book? I have a few leftover notes on here that I that I can just skip through. But did you have any other thoughts you wanted to talk about? No, in fact, I'm surprised we were able to talk as long because it is such a lean novel. And because it really does do its job and get out of your way so quickly. I, you know, I'm surprised that we actually had as much to say about it as we did. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I just wanted to mention a few things, which is that we are talking about Gide. It's important to remember about Simonon too. He spent a lot of time very bitter that he didn't get treated like a real artist, you know? And he in particular had a lot of antipathy for people like Albert Camus. He really he really felt like uh, some of his books were similar to like The Stranger and and had a lot of resentment towards the literary establishment. He 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 nursed a lot of grudges, and part of the reason that he nursed so many grudges is that during World War II he fucking got clouzoed. He got he got blacklisted and treated as a collaborator uh, in essentially the same way, which is that he continued to work and made a few movies that uh, made a few novels that were critical of provincial France and the French character at a time when France really didn't want to fucking hear it. You know, what I always say about Clouseau, and it's important to remember Clouseau getting the big black axe for Le Corbeau, to put it in context, there were people who made actual propaganda films for the Vichy government that were not censured. And really the only thing McGray did is he continued to work and write and publish novels, even in occupied Germany, right? And he moved to America too and was in Hollywood. And that that was it. And he got like attacked. He became like a figure of ignominy for the rest of his career in France until his reputation sort of gradually got restored. But I think that's fascinating when you read a lot of his books, especially the later Ramandeurs, they're all about like, how you can't trust your neighbor, you know? And they're specifically about, too, the irony is that a lot of his books are about like, these motherfuckers all were happy to collaborate with the Germans, you know? Which is a little bit of what Clouseau has to say in Le Corbeau is that like, these people are all have evil lurking in them, you know? And France really didn't want to hear that. And instead, oh, we're the bad guys? Well, didn't you continue to use a publisher rather than I don't know what they wanted them to do, you know? Well, and that, his, 
his attitude was, I survived the occupation just barely during World War One. I. I was going to make money and make sure I wasn't eating rats and get the fuck out of there, you know? Well, Chris, that leads perfectly into my dessert pick. Yes. <laughs> uh, Go for you, it. Uh, and you have to remind me how to pronounce K-de, or K-de Fevers? K-Days Au-Fair. K-Days Au-Fair. It's K-Days Au-Fair. The Cousin oh, film. Yeah. One of my favorites, man. I love that yeah, movie. It's I love it too. 1947. Uh, I thought of this specifically as a post-war French film, kind of in comparison to the ones we've been talking about and the novels, the McGray novels, you know, that were published in the 20s and 30s leading up to this, because it takes a completely different kind of look at the detectives and the policemen. In this movie, uh, is, uh, the main inspector is played by the great Louis Chouvet, playing Inspector Antoine, who is kind of reluctantly pulled into this uh, whole murder situation where a jealous husband has supposedly shot to death a man, a uh, influential producer who was wooing his musician wife, his, uh, his, his cabaret singing wife. And her tra-la-la. <laughs> her tra-la-la. Uh, and really what it all comes down to is not about a it's not about a erratic type, you know, brilliant criminal mastermind. It's about these idiots who <laughs> have gotten themselves in trouble because they just are so terrified of being found, you know, guilty by being arrested by they're so terrified of persecution that they just lie themselves deeper and deeper into a hole. And it looks like it's going to be bleak ending for all of them. And they're all so embarrassed by their horniness that they just keep lying themselves (laughs) into deeper holes because they don't want anybody to know how horny they are. That's right. No, we've got a a, a neighbor who is in love with uh, Susie, Susie Delaire, the singer. Yeah. All of them have their own reasons for having to cover up their, (laughs) their base desires. But in the middle of this, we've got Juve, who is, you know, just terrific as this character who is as, you know, intelligent as a McGray, uh, who is, you know, probably could solve a brilliant criminal conspiracy or, or scheme, but is stuck with these morons who have just haven't, aren't criminals and haven't done anything wrong, haven't murdered anybody, but he has to sort out this whole thing all by himself. So I think it's a completely different take on this kind of a story in the post-war France where it's not about these you know the, the symptom of crime that has to be you know that has to be confronted and understood by these inspectors it's something that's like god damn people are just doing the stupidest stuff and you just need to like kind of <laughs> your job is to go in there and just sort all this out and hopefully you'll get it all sorted out by Christmas so you can spend time with your son <laughs> you know and it's but it's a a, a brilliantly funny film and tense, a very tense. Clouseau never made a film that wasn't incredibly tense and had like lots of lots of tension underneath it, even though it's largely sort of like a fun affair throughout yeah. the whole thing. It's sort of the bridge between like the more overtly comedic ones, like The Assassin Lives at Twenty One, and the more serious. It ones definitely like, is like Diabolique. Yeah, yeah, it's leading up into that era, but. And it's also uh, a movie that I constantly do a double take thinking it's a McGray movie. I constantly uh, yeah, think sense. because yeah. it takes place at Cade Fair, and the only the only other place I come across the phrase Cade Fair is in McGray books, right? right so right. I constantly do a double take. And and Louis Chouvet would be great casting for McGray, you know? I think that yeah, he'd make for a sure. really good one. 
Yeah. Did he ever play McRae? I don't even know. Jesus Christ. I don't know. Although, you know, uh, the actor plays Joseph Huertan. It was driving me crazy. Do you know he plays a movie detective that when I tell you who it is, you'll go, oh, right. Do you know what he plays? Uh, no, no. He's the investigating detective in Eyes Without a Face, like two decades later. No kidding. Yes. And when you when you see him, when you look at it, you'll be like, oh, yes, fucking of course. Oh, wow. It was no, making I, no, me I did not crazy. Wow. Doesn't look like you've ever played McGray, but I agree with you. That could have been great. Yes. So for my dessert pairing, uh, I was going to be clever and say that you should look at uh, Farrick Pinter's famous McGray covers, right? And look at Farrick Pinter's McGray drawings. Those are a great pairing with these uh, because they seem to be based on Simonon himself, right? The actual McGray character seemed with the long pipe. He cuts a very Monsieur Hulot-esque figure, right? But uh, that's too clever. You're going to see those covers someday. What I'm going to say is you should watch, now that we've talked about all this, Chabrol's pseudo-McGray movie, Inspector Bellamy, Mm. Claude Chabrol's last film, because that movie is a very interesting sort of, a very interesting take on this kind of detective and this kind of detective story. And um, Chabrol, I think, intends it a little bit as a summation of his whole career. And it is an interesting film in the the context of everything Chabrol did, but it's also a critique of this sort of thing. And it's very light and simple movie compared to some of his bigger masterpieces. It's a much smaller and more intimate movie than a lot of them. But I think it's trying to consider that kind of detective who lives his life entirety in crime, uh, that kind of schism within himself to be thinking about crime and living crime all the time and still be a husband and a homemaker and a person who is a regular domestic man, right? And Chabrol, who is an artist who spent his entire life living in crime and thinking about crime, who is a regular man and person who is not a criminal on top of it. And I think that movie's about that schism that has to exist within these people. And it's very, I think, in tune with what McGray was as a character. I think it's it's essentially his essay on what made Simonon special and what he hopes made his own work special is what I think Inspector Bellamy is about. Yeah, that's a great pick. And it's always disheartening to hear people refer to it as like kind of a disappointing final film by Chabrol. I think for the reasons you've already mentioned, it's a perfect final film for him. I think it feels like a consideration of his entire body of work. And like you said, how he, you know, obviously had dipped his toes into the crime genre more than once. And also Gerard Depardieu, who, you know, would have been obviously an interesting casting for McRae in any movie. Yeah. But, you know, kind of setting it in a more sort of a modern consideration. So it's a very, you know, it's a very reflective kind of film. It feels to me like when you have a movie that has the two bookends where a character picks up the book and opens it and starts reading and then closes it and has a little scene at the end, right? It feels like the movie equivalent of that scene after the book is closed. 
it feels like he knows he's closed the book and we're going to have this little reflective moment. And he's drawn that reflective moment out to feature length, which I agree. Like if you want to say it's inconsequential in comparison to other work he's done, I think so. But I think that reflectiveness is very touching and interesting if you're willing to meet it on its level. Absolutely. It's a great pick. Cool, man. Did you, did you, did you, uh, I don't know. Do you have any feelings about how Radic is from Brno, like Kundera? The only other time I've heard Brno mentioned in my life. No, do you have any other things you wanted to talk about? Did you enjoy your first McGray novel? Did you enjoy this? I loved it. I loved it. I'm I'm in. I'm in. I don't know what to read next, but I'm in. Just grab any of them. Just grab yeah. any. I like my friend. There's McGray a whole a list on the back here. Oh, is there? Yeah, a giant list. McGray bides his time, McGray's revolver, McGray in court, McGray afraid. So many of them. <laughs> yeah, there's none. This my book is cut to the chase. It's got this photo of him in the sleeve. Come on, that's Manjuri Low. Look what I'm are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm really glad that you proposed this. And I, I learned a lot too listening to you. And I wanted to talk to you, sit down, and talk to you about Simulon for a while. Now I feel like this has been a very valuable primer for me to get into his stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny too. I feel like it was for me as well. I feel like maybe now I can finally get into Simonon because I'm telling you, you will feel it's, (laughs) you'll always feel like a novice. And if somebody disputes everything, my characterization, you know, what can I do? They'll have 150 novels that I haven't read on McGray alone, you know, to tell me what it's actually like. Well, thank you again. This has been super valuable. Um, Thank you for everyone for listening. Thank you to our Patreons for your continued support. We've had some incredible uh, recent additions to our Patreon exclusives, including a conversation between myself and Brian Sauer about one of the weirder Oscar night uh, numbers. We've had an amazing video essay. We have uh, continued. We have new episodes for our continuing series, Five from the Fire, where we invite special guests to discuss five movies from five directors that they would rescue from a burning warehouse if they could. We've had lots of great guests, including filmmaker Jeremy Workman and uh, writer Tamsin Cleary and Marcus Penn. It's uh, just been such a fun series and we'll have more of those for you. So if you haven't subscribed to our Patreon, we highly recommend you do. We can do so for the low, low price of $2. Yeah, you can even do it for one. Uh, I'm not sure you'll get access to everything, but $2 is the price. And it allows us to pay our writers to write for the site, which uh, just this week I was seeing on social media, there's some famous outlets who pay people like $14 an article. It's fucking appalling. Uh, And we don't want to do that. So this support goes to making sure that everybody can can get something in the neighborhood of their value when they work with the site and work for us and that we can continue doing the podcast. So we definitely want to wholeheartedly thank our Patreon subscribers. Thank everybody for listening and get out there. And, you know, by the end of next week, have read three or four Seminon books. You can probably read them faster than he wrote them, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Undoubtedly.